Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. Thank you so much for joining us in the second hour. Uh, we're going to be joined this hour for a kind of extended discussion. Uh, in this segment, we're going to be talking to uh, an independent journalist uh, and her work We've got a link to her work. It's on the show page. Her name is Eva Bartlett. She's based in Canada, and her blog in Gaza is a kind of a good portal for to see all of her work, and some of her stuff is published around the web uh, at various other websites and blogs, uh, including Oriental Review, Dissident Voice, uh, Rabble, um, Russia Today, RT's Op-Edge section as well. Eva Bartlett is her name, and... Uh, Eva, thank you so much for joining us this week. It's a pleasure to be on 21st Century Wire, Patrick. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So uh, <laughs> let's get right into it, Eva. You know, I wanted to get you on to talk about, uh, we've, we've been following your work for a while via social media, and also we have some uh, uh, mutual uh, colleagues uh, that we work with as well, who you know, but the I think it's really important right now, the situation in Syria um, what I've noticed, and I wanted to talk to you about this specifically and, and, and firstly, is there's been a gigantic, a gigantic wave of a, a kind of a public relations or a PR push. I like to call it a marketing wave. It's been absolutely incredible. And you've written about this in one of your recent pieces. I think it was published on January 30th. Uh, on on Russia Today and also at globalresearch.ca. And it was really about, um, you know, the, the headline is, Where's the West's Compassion and Condemnation Following Terror Attacks in the Middle East? And I see photos of children being constantly spread around uh, to promote this famine, if you will, or this idea of a famine in Syria. And this is a kind of a catalyst for a call for a humanitarian intervention in Syria. Of course, we've heard all this before, and we've seen this pattern uh, play out before, but it's almost like it's it's amazing how fast this stuff is spun up now uh, in the West through organizations like Avaz and through all these sort of social media tools uh, for activists and so forth. And they've really hijacked a lot of these stories, and I think none bigger than Syria. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on this? this is, it, I've never seen anything spun up so quickly and so vast uh, these days. It's almost like it's a machine now. Absolutely, a propaganda machine, and it's um, it's as you know, it's not just um, the corporate media, whether it's Western corporate media or Gulf state media. It's also the groups that you're mentioning, Avaz, Human Rights Watch, all these so-called human rights groups that um, you know a, a, a person that is not actively researching or following Syria might come across a headline by Ken Roth of Human Rights Watch or a tweet by. Ken Roth, or even the United Nations. Um, and because, you know, the average person maybe hasn't looked into the, their backgrounds and their, their ties to different state departments or nefarious funding sources, um, the average person will take what they say is credible, even though, you know, we can get into the various lies of Ken Roth, but, um, you know, so you have the corporate media, you have the human rights um, front groups, you have the United Nations itself. Um, not telling a clear story, either blatantly lying or not telling a clear story. And we, as you mentioned with Medaya, it, um, it's, it's not the first time this has happened. And it happened, you know, almost overnight, just suddenly all these um, headlines were coming out about starving people in Medaya. Um, because 
when did this happen? It happened right around just before the Geneva talks were going to kick off. And that's something Ambassador Al-Jafri, Syria's um, ambassador to the United Nations, pointed out, is that whenever there's going to be some sort of political talks, there's suddenly this um, some sort of propaganda campaign, whether it's, you know, in the past it was Yarmouk, um, other instances include false allegations of chemical weapons usage, and it's something that um, people who aren't well informed can, you know, they'll lap up and they'll they'll, they'll feel this, you know, um, revulsion towards the Syrian government because they they believe what is what they're being lied to about. So it's a very strong propaganda tool. Um, with the case of Madaya, you had. Numerous people, numerous um, agencies and prominent people tweeting or writing about the so-called starving people in Madaya. Um, there may have been elements of truth to this, but the way they reported it was, and I'm sure you're aware of the narrative, was that um, the big bad Syrian Arab army was starving 40,000 people in Madaya. Um, no mention of the terrorists within, the 600 terrorists approximately within Madai, no mention of the fact that, well, the, the population may or may not be 40,000. Um, quite likely it's less, but even, even if it is 40,000, um, they make no mention of the fact that, you know, Al-Qaeda in Syria, Al-Nusra, um, Ahrar al-Sham, the so-called Free Syrian Army, are in Madaya. They're the ones that are preventing the food from reaching the civilians. And this is something that actually has been documented by, you know, channels that are telling the truth, like um, Al-Minar, Al-Mayadeen, Lebanese channels, or Russia Today, whose um, journalist Murad Gazdiev went to Madai, and on January 11th, he was saying, he was tweeting out that um, the Syrian military sent 42 tons of food aid on 27th of November, all of it was seized by the rebels, um, that the civilians themselves are complaining that these terrorists stole their food, and they've held demonstrations, and they've said, we don't want you here, get out of here, but, um, you know, again, the corporate media won't report that. Um, again, with Madai, you had images that were from other parts, whether in Syria, other parts of the world, or in Syria, or in Lebanon, like the famous case of this uh, seven-year-old, I think she was a seven-year-old girl from South Lebanon, who, um, pretty little girl, you know, perfect for a propaganda campaign, and she was purported to have been the starving child. They, they used her photo and then a photo of an emaciated child and said, she's starving in Madaya, we have to do something. And she and her family came out and said, I'm healthy, I'm well, and I don't live in Madaya. So this is just one example um, of the different lies that were put forth on Madaya, while at the same time completely ignoring the, the massive suffering in other parts of Syria at the hands of these terrorists that the West likes to call moderates. Yes, yes, and uh, and also the CBC Canadian broadcast uh, 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 on your neck of the woods. There, they also ran with this in a big way. Not just this one, but other stories as well. But uh, they put this image of a guy that looked like it was straight out of uh, you know Auschwitz or something, um, all skin and bones. And this was part of their sort of PR campaign uh, with regards to this famine in Syria. And uh, I see all these major media outlets are kind of in on it. And the BBC also were swapping footage from, uh, I think it was uh, 2014 in Yarmouk, and mm. throwing that in there in the new report. Uh, it's amazing what the mainstream media can, can do with the, the power of uh, editing. Uh, and they do rarely they rarely get caught out the times they do get caught out obviously we people can highlight it but there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get caught out that just kind of makes it makes it through and uh, people don't notice it because they're running on live broadcasts and stuff like that but um 
you know, is, and also uh, just tell us a little bit about your experience on the ground recently. I mean, you mentioned that you'd been to uh, to Sweden, and th- these are also sort of hot uh, hot button uh, points. These sort of towns and villages, and they 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 use a lot of these locations uh, in order to kind of spin a geopolitical narrative. Of we saw that with Madaya, we saw this with Yarmouk as well. And tell us about some of these other locations and the people you spoke to. Sure, just on the note of Madaya and related um, areas. So, um, again, with Madaya, um, what the corporate media did not report was the official Red Cross spokesperson himself saying in mid-October enough food was delivered to last um, for two months. And, again, this was facilitated by the Syrian government and Syrian army. So this was not reported. Um, The other villages that um, should be in the corporate media um, but are not are villages named uh, Fu and Kafaria, which are in the north of Syria, north of Idlib, which have been besieged um, for four years but um, totally besieged since March 2015. And the UN knows this and acknowledged its so-called grave concern in in March 2015, but then has gone on to do nothing about it um, and have very poorly reported on it, scarcely mentioning those names. Um, But they're suffering immensely. They they have recently received some food aid, but they don't have the basics of life. They don't have fuel to run, you know, their their generators for hospital machinery or pumping water. Um, they're, They're... gravely suffering and they're being pummeled with terrorist rockets and mortars on a daily basis and and what's the reason for the blackout of of uh, those two towns not being mentioned is it because of the uh, sectarian makeup or the uh, the religious or ethnic makeup of the people in those towns that they don't want that to get publicity is this why I think it. I think it's simply because it doesn't serve their narrative. So Madaya served their narrative because they could say the Syrian army is laying siege on the town, which is true. And why is it laying siege on the town? Because the 600 terrorists within who are firing rockets and mortars outside. Um, but with Fu and Kafaria, it's completely it's residents and civilians that are they're locked within these areas. They're being besieged by terrorists. So the corporate media wouldn't want to highlight this because it doesn't serve the agenda of we have to save you know Syria because they would have to acknowledge that these are Western and back terrorists that are doing the besieging and the terrorizing. Mm-hmm. So, so basically, the Al Nusra and some of these uh, so-called rebel groups—they're commandeering food aid, basically hoarding it, taking what they need for their forces first, and then selling the rest off on the black market. Is that what's going on? That's what's reported. And again, you refer, refer to um, Murad Ghazdi of the RT journalist who said um, one of his tweets was, Madai civilians say rebels charged about $250 for a kilogram of rice. So, wow. I mean, that's just one example. And I mentioned um, Al-Mayadeen uh, footage, and, you know, they, they're interviewing residents of uh, Madai, and it's in Arabic, but the, I remember one older man is saying, you know, these terrorists, we don't want them here, they're stealing our food, they're killing our people. And it, it can't get more clear than, than that if you talk with the people of Madai, then you get a totally different image than what the corporate media purports. But then, again, with Fu and Kafaria, you have at least since March 2015, 300 people have died, whether through, you know, rocket mortar terrorism or malnutrition, you know, starving, actual starving. Um, But they don't mention this. Um, The interesting thing, I I did another um, short article just looking at uh, the UN and how they were portraying this, you know, on their Twitter feed. And they kept blasting Madaya, and in the past they blasted Yarmouk. They blasted any area where the terrorists inhabit, Zabadani, Elwar, but they virtually say nothing about areas like Fuakafaria or recently liberated areas like um, uh, uh, Nubal and Zahra in the north of Syria. 
Yes, yeah, and and there's a really big push right now. Um, the Syrian Arab army has, has made what appears to be major uh, inroads into Aleppo. And so the the big talking point that I'm seeing in the Western media in terms of this, you know, the crisis narrative that they're spinning constantly is that, oh, there's going to be a huge migrant influx into Turkey because uh, Aleppo is falling, okay? And so essentially what what I can gather from looking at this from a strategic point of view is the Syrian army has basically cut off a major supply route uh, for weapons and terrorists and uh, other sort of illicit uh, things uh, in back and forth uh, that corridor north of Aleppo into Syria. So they're basically cutting, threatened to cut off the supply line. And so this is going to mean basically Aleppo is, is the major stronghold in the west of Syria anyway, in the western half. This is the major, major stronghold from the beginning, from 2011 of the unrest, right? So is it, a, so they're basically the western media is trying to say, oh my gosh, we need to do something now. Aleppo's fallen. It's, it's incredible how coddled, um, the narrative is. And it's almost naked in terms of its, uh, you know, military uh, operation. You know, in terms of what's Western-backed, um, it's it's amazing. No, no words, no concern, really, of the people of Aleppo or Syria that have been taken over basically by this sort of foreign-backed, uh, not so civil conflict uh, in Syria. But I, I see now another call for intervention or safe zone because of basically because they're losing the the foreign powers are losing there's uh, some of their major footholds in syria precisely and that again it just shows how absurd western uh, reporting in syria is i mean you would think it, the liberation of nubul and zahra of over 60,000 people who have been besieged by terrorists for four years um, you would think that would be cause for some reporting in Western media. You think it would be cause for celebration if they were actually reporting fairly and justly. But um, they, they aren't. I, I mean, I don't generally subject myself to the torture of reading corporate media unless I'm researching something. But I'm, I'm imagining, like you say, they're simply reporting this, this narrative of an influx of refugees, but they're not reporting that, you know, the scenes from uh, Zahra and Nubal, where the people are cheering for the army that has just liberated them, and they're praising the army, and they're praising their president. None of this serves the agenda, and none of it will be reported. So, so this is interesting. So that you know, the the base it's based on contrast your experience on the ground with the media impression from Western Europe and from North American mainstream media and and political mainstream as well is that what the, the image they're projecting in Syria is that it's basically you can boil it down to the sort of comic book uh, vignette where Assad is up on a hill in a fortress surrounded by his henchmen and uh, the whole country is just basically at his throat waiting to overthrow him he has no mandate or popularity or support anywhere in the country except for a few uh, you know alawite strongholds if you will this is the basic narrative of london of washington of uh, you know nato countries as well this is what they say how does this contrast with what your experience is on the ground um it's a stark contrast. I speak moderate colloquial Arabic, so I can get by on my own when I'm in Syria, and I can converse with people, you know. Um, if it's not a very specific topic, then I can converse with people without a translator. And so I mention this because when I've been in Syria, I've been there four times since April 2014, and I've been to some of the key areas like Homs, um, like Maloula, like Latakia, Damascus, of course. And... Um, 
the areas, especially you take Homs, which the corporate media has tried to paint as the capital of the so-called revolution. Um, I've been there three times, and each time I've gone there, you know, I've met with people, whether they are Alawi or Sunni or Christian, I've had the same thing told to me that they support their president, they support their army. In the case of, say, the old city of Homs, which is predominantly um, Christian, you know, I, I met with one family um, who actually stayed there and they remained in their home and suffered from the, the thievery of the so-called moderates that were in Homs at that time before they, there was a deal in, um, I think it was May 2014, to extract the terrorists from, from the old city of Homs. And this enabled people to come back and start to try to rebuild their lives. But this family that I interviewed, um, they had stayed in their home, and they, you want to talk about starvation, they were greatly emaciated because the terrorists had stolen every last bit of morsel of food, oil, olives, anything edible, spices even. Um, And their story was completely different um, than what the corporate media told. Their story was that, of course, this is not a revolution. We didn't want them here. They terrorized us. Uh, I met with... um, also in Homs in the Old City, a person who had uh, been a friend of the late uh, Father Franz van der Lute, who was a, a Dutch priest that had lived in Syria for decades. And he was neither pro or anti-government. He was simply stating what he saw and what he was writing before he was assassinated by these moderate terrorists. He was writing that from the beginning he saw armed people um, using weapons against Syrian security. This is, again, a narrative that the West does not allow. And, you know, wherever I've gone, I've been told this by Syrians. They've said whether, you know, whether they had hoped for some sort of political change, if whether they'd supported what they thought was a so-called revolution, or whether, you know, they knew from the beginning, and a great many Syrians did know from the beginning that this was a foreign war on Syria. But even those that, that thought, you know, okay, this is something I, I, I want to support because I want one, two, three, political change, they quickly realized that this was not... Um, something that was going to achieve political change. It was simply a bloody, you know, war of terror on Syria. Um, for example, I met a man from Homs that um, he told me his, his narrative, his anecdote was, you know, you call for freedom. Okay, well, my freedom is I choose President al-Assad. And so his neighbor, you know, neighboring terrorist uh, told him, okay, for this you have to die. That I mean, it's a, a simple anecdote. But I think maybe a more um, telling one is that in June 2014, after the elections, um, I went to Homs and again to the old city, and um, the people were still celebrating the elections. They were still celebrating the fact that you know they'd chosen President Assad. Um, a week after the elections, they still were having a street party, and this is just you know. Um, if they were truly being oppressed by their president, if they wouldn't walk around wearing T-shirts with his face, you know, putting up posters. I mean, they're not forced to do this. They weren't forced, when I was in Lebanon um, during the elections, they weren't forced to walk for several kilometers for two days to reach the Syrian embassy. They weren't forced to sing, you know, and praise their president and, and to vote. They did this because they believe in him, and this is something that we're not allowed to know. Um, when I was in Syria last, uh, in December of 2015, um, I, w- I went to this church for a, a concert. I was invited by a friend of mine, and I could barely get into the church. It was so packed with people who had come hoping that President Assad would be there because he'd showed up the day before while the choir was practicing. So, you know, wherever I've gone, uh, people have told me, you know, take Ma'lula, which is a Christian area, one of the oldest, um, one of the only areas speaking Aramaic still. 
and it was ravaged for about eight months by NATO's terrorists. And they destroyed historic sites, they destroyed Christian um, iconography, and they, you know, killed obviously many people. And locals from the area, just like anywhere where the terrorists come in, locals took up arms and fought them off along with the support of the Syrian Arab Army and National Defense Forces. So just it's it's too much like, there's too much to say about the uh, the way the corporate media reports on what's really happening in Syria and what Syrians actually want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when I was in uh, in Lebanon 2013, it was like the first some of the fir- earlier waves of refugees uh, were coming into Lebanon. A lot of the people were you know people college age um they left for two their family would the families generally would send the young uh kids uh into lebanon with some money uh so they, they would go look for work or they'd mm. try to enroll in schools or they would try to get into a property either buy or rent uh somewhere in lebanon just to basically keep the kids safe that was that, a lot of that was going on so the middle classes were emptying out in 2012 and 2013 you know just keep the kids safe Send them, send them outside the borders and whatnot. And yes. I, I remember going, seeing a, a rally in, in one part of uh, in Beirut, and it was just, it was pro Assad, you know, absolutely, no, no doubt about it. You know, the pictures, the posters, the chants, the songs, everything like that. And then, so I'm looking at this, and then I'm looking on the news. I'm watching CNN, and they're telling a completely different story. Like basically that the, uh, you know, Assad's hiding in a bunker somewhere in Damascus, and he doesn't come out. And you know, basically, one of the Assad has to go, as John Kerry would say, "You must go, you must go," and there shall be no negotiations about a political transition that's involving Bashar al-Assad, etc. So again, it's this personalization, this this formula that's worked so well. Uh, and so many times uh, in modern history, anyway, um, this personalization of a leader to demonize, uh, to, to basically encapsulate the whole of a country, the whole of a people, the whole of a national identity, and to basically wrap that up and reduce it down, boil it down to a, 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 a figurehead, whether it be uh, Vladimir Putin represents all of Russia, all that was, all that ever is, and what shall be Russia is Vladimir Putin, uh, all of Iraq is Saddam Hussein, uh, all of Iran used to be Mahat Ahmadinejad, but he's gone now, so they're having trouble transitioning that to uh, to a Rouhani, uh, and then all of uh, Syria is Bashar al-Assad, on, and, and Libya is defined by Muammar Gaddafi, and nothing else matters. And so we see this time and time again. This is this kind of repetitive formula that's Im- imposed uh, on Western audiences, uh, and it's very effective, quite frankly. It works. Uh, for a certain s- section of the population, they do respond. They resonate with that. And I think it's quite an amazing phenomenon. I mean, I'd, I'd love for someone to do a PhD study on this very phenomenon, this idea, this psychological device, if you will, of personalizing a country and all of its contents and all of its people and culture and history into a sort of a leader which is demonized. It's amazing. It is. And, you know, I've had a number of, I can't even call them debates, um, with armchair activists that opine, you know, what's best for Syria while they're living comfortably in, in say, one of them was living in Western, in, in, the BC, in BC, in Western Canada. And he was, he was opining something along the lines, you know, he was very um, reluctant to say that Assad should stay, but it was clear that, you know, that was best because we need to fight ISIS. And I was like, 
Mm-hmm. What, you know, it doesn't matter your opinion. The Syrians, they have come out very loudly and clearly, repeatedly over the years saying, we want our president. But, yeah, aside from that, you have other remarkable um, Syrian leadership and very articulate spokespeople like Ambassador Al-Jafri or Dr. Shaban. Um, and, you know, pre- okay, President Assad is the leader of the country, but... Like you say, he's not he's not Syria, yeah. And he himself points that out. It isn't about him; it's about what's best for Syria. It's about fighting this foreign war in Syria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, and and the other thing is, let's let's be realistic about it. Uh, if the West uh, had their wicked way back in 2011, when this thing was was initially kicking off, um, and the they would like to have seen the government collapse in Damascus within 12 months. Um, I don't think there's any, you know, that's not an illusion or delusion on my part. That, that I think that is what it was the objective. And if not, if that didn't work, then they had the chemical weapons angle, which they introduced in 2013 and so forth. And there's these different sort of waves of different ways that they can sort of marginalize the country and handicap it and then eventually take it out by the knees or by the head. And so if they had their way, what would be the result if if this if this confab of the Al Nusra Front, the Turkmen, the Islamic Front, uh, the Islamic Army, uh, ISIS, and all these this this basically this conclave of of foreign backed terrorists, if they had their way and they they did topple the uh, the state of Syria, what would what would be replaced in that vacuum? What what would you envision based on your understanding? You're seeing. What would what would fill that vacuum? Would it be ten years of of internal strife, chaos, and um, basically emptying out the country of anybody who's you know not a Wahhabist? I mean, how how would this play out? I think you just look at Libya, and there's your answer. Mm-hmm. They they Syria has resisted. Thank goodness they've been able to resist for five years. Um, full-on Western intervention, so-called intervention, the destruction of their country. But, I mean, look at Libya now. It's it's complete chaos, and people are suffering greatly there because the West decided it had to go in and save Libya. From from one man? From one man who, yeah. like you said, you know, he, he was Libya, and he was demonized, and, in fact, the vast majority of Libyans actually liked him, and he was doing good things for his country. But that's aside. You know, um, President Assad... There's a number of good articles which have outlined um, the reforms that the Syrian government made from the beginning. But this is another thing that, that the West won't report, like th- that actually Syria's constitution is very protective of its sovereignty and very, very socialist constitution and you know, in- includes many points that, um, enab- that um, provide security for you know, the elderly, the disabled, that you know, make sure that Syria's um, resources will remain in Syria in terms of, you know, international companies coming in and looting Syria as they'd like to do. Mm-hmm. So, Do you think that's the modus operandi and one of the long-term? I mean, th- there is talk, obviously, there's a number of pipeline projects regionally that uh, transverse uh, over Syria or land bridge or Syrian waters uh, from, you know, say, Israel to, to, to Turkey and so forth. But besides that, it's, it's the looting of the country. It's the... Uh, the sort of the IMFication of Syria, uh, selling off its state assets to private ownership or foreign control. Is this, is this one of the motivations, one of the modus operandi that, that you think is, is there in the background with regards to what the West's, you know, long-term intentions are for Syria? 
I'd say that makes sense. Um, definitely one of the, the reasons that this is happening to Syria. And aside from that, of course, we have so-called Israel. Um, and, you know, who, who is benefiting from this chaos in, in, in Syria? It's the Zionist state. Um, they would, I'm, I mean, they would love, they're treating terrorists in their own hospitals and funneling them back into Syria. Yeah. They would love to see Syria, which is a, a resistance state, you know, an ally of, of the axis of resistance, which is obviously anti-so-called Israel. Um, and Syria also, you know, is one of the strongest advocates for Palestine. Yeah. Um, and that's something, again, you know, take, we were talking about Yarmouk before. So one of the reasons um, used the, the Yarmouk card, as we call it, um, was played so heavily. One, it was to demonize the Syrian government, you know, with this whole starving people um, campaign, but also to divide people. And this is something I've encountered a lot. People who support Palestine, as I do, um, are confused about Syria. And this Yarmouk campaign was, was one major reason that they were confused because what the Western media and human rights groups were telling them was that, that Assad was killing Palestinians. Although Yarmouk, actually, if you looked into it, Yarmouk is not strictly a Palestinian neighborhood. It's a, it's a predominantly Syrian neighborhood with about 200,000 Palestinians. But that was never talked about in the media. Um, but yeah, the, the, the question of, um, you know, if they succeeded, which I do not believe they will, um, in, in um, destroying Syria, then that takes away a major supporter of Palestinians and, and this, the, the right of Palestinian state and, you know, um, full 1948 borders. Right. Um, Palestinians within Syria have the same rights as Syrians, and you contrast that. You've been in, in Beirut. You've seen, I'm sure you're aware of how terrible the conditions are for Palestinians living in camps in, yeah, in, in Beirut. Yeah, in Sidon and uh, down in Tyre as well, and uh, Becca Valley. I've seen lots. I mean, there's, too, there's too many camps in Lebanon, quite frankly. I, I am just amazed and how long and it's it's because this it's such a small country that this you know the lebanese state has to leave them almost as persona non grata for for their own uh they have their own concerns about absor- absorbing them as, abs- absorbing them as citizens and so this is just the, the cans have been kicked down the road one generation after another and then you still have these camps there and they have no real official status it's the, it's a horrible situation it, it really is, and, and there's people who want to blame that on the Lebanese government, but you, to me, I can't really blame that on the Lebanese government because they inherited a situation that is a direct result of the kind of uh, colonial uh, expansion of Israel, basically, from 1948 onwards, really, if you want to break it right down. I mean, that's fundamentally what I, what I see. Right. Yeah, I, I just um, contrasted, say, Lebanon or Jordan, for example, camps to Syria, just simply to highlight how how good Palestinians have it in Syria, mm-hmm. which you know is in contrast to what the corporate yeah, media would have believe. So they so they have a lot more support from from Syrian government from the people of Syria than than some of the other surrounding countries. Because I know that's not the case in in Jordan per se. It's a very no. divisive issue in Jordan, the Palestinian refugee thing. No, uh, in Syria, they have the same rights as Syrians. They have free education, free health care. They can work professional jobs, which they cannot do in Jordan or in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. The only thing that they can't do is, you know, be a part of the government or, I believe, you know, vote in, in um, governmental elections. But aside from that, and they're, they're treated like, for example, the Syrians that lived in uh, Yarmouk, they, and the Palestinians, they, you know, they, they consider themselves the same. You know, they... They do have different heritages, but they consider themselves the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are Palestinians in Syria who are fighting alongside the Syrian army against this terrorism. Mm. And that's something that would raise an eyebrow in Israel, wouldn't it? 
Um, yeah. In ter- so they would immediately have an interest there. And if you throw Hezbollah into the mix, um, who come from Lebanon, who are in in all purposes assisting uh, some of the efforts of the Syrian security forces to root out terrorists in urban areas especially, um, this is going to raise more of an interest with regards to Israel. And so they are intervening, actually. They have waged a number of airstrikes in Syria over the last couple of years, more than a few, actually, maybe a dozen in in total. Uh, So they are intervening, but that doesn't get any uh, play in terms of, uh, you know, no alarms at the UN Security Council if Israel just basically willy-nilly launches an airstrike somewhere in Syria. They don't really tell you why. They don't really get into details about what the target really was uh, or targeted assassination programs. No big deal. That's okay. Move along. You know, uh, Israel has a right to defend itself, et cetera, et cetera. But oh, yet, yeah. but, but yet, this is a complete violation. So, again, this, the pattern that I see, total violation of Syria's airspace, Syria's sovereignty by the United States, by its coalition, by Israel, by everybody, basically, except for Russia is probably the only player or Iran, Russia, and Hezbollah are, are the only legal uh, entrance into that situation. The rest of them are in, wouldn't you say it would be a violation of international law? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. The, the U.S. coalition and Turkey and everything else? Absolutely, and, and with regards to, to so-called Israel, um, Ambassador Jaffrey, I, I met with him and interviewed him early 2015, and he pointed out that um, the U.N. observers in the Golan area had issued reports of the interactions between Israeli soldiers and terrorists. The, the fact that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, terrorists are being treated in Israeli hospitals and sent back into Syria. And so you're talking about the Golan Heights, uh, that, that section there? Is that, this is where this is taking place? Yeah, where the UN observers were. Some, um, well, I, they're I, not there anymore, right? They've well, they're, they're there in some areas, but they okay. abandoned their post in other areas because they were told to abandon their post. Right. And then the terrorists took over. And, and at the time, if, if I remember correctly, Dr. Al-Jafri was saying that, um, you know, this was not accidental because by abandoning their post and letting the terrorists take over, this meant that they, the, the terrorists can get further into southern Syria. Um, mm-hmm. and, but the observers did issue reports about the fact that, you know, Nusra or whichever terrorist was there um, and that Israel was interacting with them. And basically it just it was met with deaf ears in the UN Security Council. Mm-hmm. Right. So no issue at all. No problem. And that's an amazing thing, too, if you think about it. Um, why does the UN exist? <laughs> the UN exists, in my opinion, to enable these dirty wars on countries that are being you know, attacked by imperialist countries or by the Zionist state. The UN exists to, well, to enable Israel to even exist, period. Um, but... I mean, how many, when you look at the question of Palestine, how many resolutions have been passed by the UN that have never been acted upon, whether it's, you know, with regard to the right of Palestinians to return or the cessation of the illegal colonies or any number of resolutions have been passed but never, you know, implemented. How many are we talking about? Oh, God, I I don't know offhand. Over 50, over 60? Over 50, yeah. So this is including uh, Security Council resolutions and other UN resolutions? I would have to look at, I'd have but, to research that. I don't know offhand. But quite a few, quite a yes. few, yeah. The, the point is, you know, it only took one or two resolutions for the West, the NATO alliance, to bomb the hell out of Libya. Mm-hmm. 
and baseless resolutions. Whereas you have resolutions based on law. For example, you get back to Syria. They've um, when I met with Dr. Shaban, she was highlighting that um, the Security Council has passed a number of resolutions on terrorism: twenty one seventy, twenty one seventy eight, twenty one ninety nine, twenty two fifty three, um, to stop for countries to stop supporting, financing, arming, and facilitating terrorists. Mm-hmm. And yet, in the UN, on the Human Rights Council, you have Saudi Arabia, one of the prime sponsors of terrorism, one of the prime funders of terrorism, one of the prime, you know. Um, countries, uh, illegal countries, states, criminal states, that are exporting this Wahhabi um, ideology. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if they're on the Human Rights Council and they routinely behead their own citizens um, and execute people, you know, <laughs> that just shows how laughable the, Uni- the United Nations is. Well, you see, you see uh, I, I'm, I'm looking at video uh, before Christmas of, uh, of uh, al-Nusra or a Turkmen fighter with a U.S. tow missile. Uh, deadly, deadly piece of weaponry, okay, blowing up a, a Russian helicopter, and uh, you see them shooting down the Russian uh, pilots while they're parachuting with U.S. guns, U.S. weapons, uh, surface-to-air missiles. This, John McCain was boasting about this, by the way, on a number of uh, U.S. major media programs uh, before that happened. He said, well, we can do what they did in Afghanistan and give them uh, uh, shoulder-mounted missiles, and that'll change the course of the war. You well, know, he's met those terrorists in person, so he would be happy, wouldn't he? Yeah, he has, actually. In May, May 2013, John McCain uh, was gallivanting through northern Syria, uh, north of Aleppo, meeting with uh, all his, his uh, friends there, the moderates. So, again, supplying arms. So these are U.S. weapons paid for by the U.S. taxpayer. Um, these other programs are train and equip, arm and equip. It's it's proven that supplies are making their way into these terrorist groups, that there is no moderate rebel force. ISIS as well are, are benefiting or driving around Toyota trucks, which have been procured. It's been fairly documented those those toyota trucks are procured through u.s procurement processes okay so is this not in violation of every single u.n resolution against terrorism that you mentioned (laughs) absolutely that's why i mean it's so absurd one has to laugh but at the same time it's tragic because you have people dying as a result every day um you know in the tens and the 50s and the hundreds like you have some of the weapons that have been funneled into syria um are used to then uh slaughter people um either the the people who are besieged as i mentioned or you have like the incessant terrorism that never gets condemned the car bombing the suicide bombing you know of zahra you have um people in derzor who are you know, in when was it? In late January, there were almost 300 people were executed mm-hmm. by so-called moderates. And wow. you know, the the Guardian headline was something like dozens killed by Islamic State in mass in quote massacre. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they had to put massacre in quote because it apparently was questionable whether it was a massacre. Mm-hmm. You know, all this terrorism. I'm, I'm, I always make a point of mentioning this because it pisses me off so much. When the attacks happen in Paris, whatever they were. You had the hypocrisy of all these world leaders descending on Paris and crying, crocodile tears, and saying, we're with you. But when it comes to the car bombings, in, um, the suicide bombings in Lebanon, in Beirut, in November, or these routine bombings in Homs or wherever in Syria, there's utter silence. Yeah, yeah. Well, because they're, they're on the scale of uh, the worth of human beings... 
and I know this is this is going to upset some people, but there is a pecking order, there is a hierarchy, uh, an evaluation, if you will, uh, of of what humans are valued at what level. Okay, Western Europeans and Americans are worth quite a lot in terms of uh, humanity's uh, scale of value. There, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know who determines this scale. Uh, Israelis are very high on that, and uh, Black Africans are down on the bottom. In fact, one thousand of them are worth one American tourist or something like this, and uh, the same with the Syrians. Now, they're not worth very much, apparently. The Syrians—they're only worth the on, the only time in my in my uh, experience, the only time that Syrians are worth anything is if they're piling them into a statistic uh, in order to demonize President Assad. Like President Assad has killed two hundred and thirty or 250 or 300,000 I've, I've seen as high as 350,000 it goes up about 50,000 a month um, <laughs> 300,000 of his own people, he's butchered 300,000 of his own people then the Syrian lives are worth something okay, but it, like you said when it's clearly this is a terrorist uh, entities killing civilians with US weapons and supplies or European supplied French or whatever uh, then it's not worth anything then they, they, they might as well just be paper, you know. They might as well be cutouts because they're worth nothing, you know. Yeah. And Palestine, even lower, you know, even lower. Maybe lower than the African in terms of the Western uh, kaleidoscope of humanitarian evaluation values, you know. Yeah. It, it, it is incredible, you know. Um, and and I, I, I don't know. I'm sorry, I got off on a rant there. No, I, I totally I understand. It's a it's it's, it's quite personal. I mean, you, you can't be aware of everything that's happening in the world, all the tragedies, all the criminal illegal wars, but still, just the glaring um, lack of any sort of compassion for for real lives being lost um, is it just it's infuriating, really. But I wanted to mention something. I uh, there are some issues um, with respect to Syria that also get you no know, not just like loss of lives, but also. Um, issues that get no coverage uh, because, again, it doesn't serve the war narrative. And that's, for example, the issue of reconciliation. Right. Um, which is a government initiative that was began in June 2012. And the minister who I met in June 2014, he's actually the leader of um, an opposition party in Syria, the Syrian Socialist, uh, Social Nationalist Party. Um, and he became uh, the minister of reconciliation, a very inte- intelligent, um, articulate man. And, you know, until now, there are successes with reconciliation. I was just repeating, uh, reading on the Syrian news um, today in Homs, another 133 people um, laid down their arms and had their statuses um, settled. And when I met with Dr. Haider, I asked him, you know, I asked him the questions that had to be asked because the corporate media would say, oh, well, the, the, they're going to lay down their arms and then be disappeared. And he said there's a process of reconciliation in which they lay down their arms and agree to reunite with the, you know, with the state of Syria. Um, they, and then after, um, what did he say? Um, uh, well, they, have, they basically just have, I don't want to say education, but anyway, they are put back, they are released back into their you know, societies. And the whole point of reconciliation, he said, is to, to restore security. Um, security in Syria. It's it's not you know it's not to imprison people. It's to stop because there are people that for whatever reason have have taken up arms and realized that 
what they're fighting for is not a revolution, and they do want out of it. Um, in some areas, it's impossible for them to get out of it because, you know, their tribal leaders won't let them out or their mercenary leaders won't let them out. But there are people who are laying down their arms, and I think that... Um, you know, this is important to acknowledge. At the time when I met with Dr. Hyder, he had said that more than 10,000 Syrians have um, reconciled. By now, it would be higher than that. And doing so also, I mean, you have neighborhoods where the terrorists were. And, um, for example, recently, um, the suburb of Kadam, outside of Damascus, um, people were able to return there. So this reconciliation and, um, you know, securing of neighborhoods is very important in terms of, you know, regaining security in Syria. Mm-hmm. And so, so, and so, also that is that is not being talked about at all. By the way, uh, in in the West Western media, I watch I watch and survey the the mainstream media on a daily basis. It's it's non-existent. It, it might as well not be happening as far as they're concerned. And um, also, why? So why? What is it from your experience there? What is it about Syrians? What is what is it about the Syrian uh, uh, political mindset of the of the culture of the multi ethnicity? What is it that why has Syria been successful to this point in resisting what is a completely full on onslaught from a number of foreign actors uh, to to basically lay siege to that country with with various terrorist uh, organizations and arms and money? and violence and everything why how have they done this what is it about the syrian people what have you what is your observation of this phenomenon uh syrians are fiercely proud of their country they are resilient and strong um you know take the issue of the syrian arab army which is always demonized in the media and they say it's assad's army or an alawi army that's complete crap the army is made up of all faiths all sects and they are made up of you know of sons of brothers of people that want to defend their land um i mentioned the national defense forces um you know these are people that are not conscripted into the army that have chosen to defend syria and these again come from all all faiths um when i've been in syria for example i went to malula and national defense forces there are christian um in damascus i met with Again, National Defense Forces, they're Christian. So it's the, the, the fabric of Syria has always been secular. And as we said before, like this sectarian um, element is strictly coming from outside. There may be a small degree of people in Syria that bought into it, but the vast majority of people reject it. So I think that because Syrians have such a long, rich history, and they're proud of their culture, and they're educated, and they realize that this is a foreign plot on Syria, I mean... Um, maybe not every Syrian. There are Syrians that are fighting this um, for whatever reason. Maybe it's because they get paid. I don't know. But uh, certainly there are Syrians, the people, mercenaries in Syria that are getting paid. But the majority of people recognize what would happen to Syria if they don't fight. And they're not willing to lose it. They're, they're, I mean, they're, they're, their phrase is, with our soul and our blood, we will protect Syria. And they mean it. Um, mm-hmm. So... Another aspect, we mentioned Sueda at the very beginning, and this is an area that is largely a Druze area, and it's one of the areas that from the very beginning knew exactly what was going on, and they, they never um, allowed it to flare up in Sueda. They, they, they kept the terrorists outside. Um, so, um, I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> now I'm rambling. But I, I think it's, it's because um, Syrians 
they, they understand the plot and they're, they're willing to fight to the end. They're not willing to capitulate because they know they've seen what happened to Iraq and in Libya as well. Mm-hmm. So really this is, uh, this, it, it is such a do or die situation in terms of, uh, uh, the, the kind of the Western imperialist, uh, I guess you could call it, although I don't like that word so much, but that, th- that sort of agenda, um, this multilateral agenda from the West, this is a kind of a do or die um, situation, Syria. They've thrown so much at this. They've thrown diplomatically, uh, uh, geopolitically, via NATO, uh, via the sort of clandestine operations and uh, programs. They've thrown so much, and they've wa- they've wagered so much on Syria that and and for this to for this project, this destabilization project, to fail. I mean, it would, it's just going to send a resounding message, uh, across the world, a booming message. And, and this is why I don't think they are doubling down, tripling down every month. I see more efforts. You'd think that, uh, they'd stop, but no, they're, they're continuing. They're just trying to desperately, if you will. I mean, it's, it's the most incredible thing, but I, I see the overall arcing trend, Eva, is, uh, Syria is, is going to be returned back to the Syrians. Well, and, and thankfully, you know, with uh, the recent gains all over Syria of the Syrian army and allies, you know, we mentioned Nubal and Zahra and various parts of uh, Aleppo and Latakia and, and Dara, you know, where where they are able to stop the flow of terrorists, where they're able to make their strategic ground operations and um, resecure, you know, cities and, and villages, um, they are doing so. Unfortunately, it's where they have open borders with Turkey or Iraq and where you know, the NATO coalition is enabling the flow of terrorists, that's where it's more difficult. But um, another aspect is um, I, I see this, I see reports on a regular basis of newly trained um, volunteers, again, people like in the NDF. And you see some of these people, they're not just young men, they're not just young Assad's Alouis. These are men and women, and you see older men. You see men that have, you know, that are probably in their 50s or 60s, and they're fighting. Mm-hmm. So you have the will of the people from young to old, from men and women, who are not going to let Syria fall. Yeah. I've seen uh, people who are students or maybe who, uh, who uh, left the country, came back, joined the NDF, mm-hmm. um, and they've done it out of some sort of a conscience. Uh, they felt like this this was the most important thing they could do as a citizen of this country. That level of commitment, um, I, 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 I'll, I'll tell you that the West has underestimated the people of Syria to a huge degree. People, and, and these people like John Kerry, and I could name off all the other uh, players as well, the Samantha Powers of the world, etc. They've really underestimated the sophistication of the average Syrian, uh, the commitment... Uh, and also, they've underestimated the nationalism, uh, or, or the, the feeling of national identity, I should say, of of the average Syrian. They they literally had have no idea. And, Precisely. Yeah. Um, so. When when our I first went to Syria with a peace delegation in April 2014, and among the many people we met, you know, we met with Mufti Hassoun, who is a remarkable uh, spokesperson for Syria, and he's a perfect example of. Um, of uniting Syria because he always describes himself as the Mufti of Syria, not the Mufti of Muslims in Syria. Mm-hmm. And his son was assassinated by terrorists, and he immediately issued, um, he immediately um, forgave the assassins and asked them to lay down their weapons and come back to Syria. 
Um, and Dr. Hyder himself, the Minister of Reconciliation, his own son also was assassinated. Wow. So, yeah, you have, you know, a, a lot of suffering in Syria, but these, these people, um, you know, uh, lost my train of thought there. But what, oh, what I was going to say was in that um, April 2014 visit, we also met with some of the um, internal opposition in Syria, representative of Kurds, of women's rights, of um, different political parties within Syria, not Saudi-based parties. Mm-hmm. And all of them that we met with, um, and there were about 10 or 15 of them, um, they said they stand behind their government. So they want political reforms. They're going to work to achieve whatever reforms it is they want later when the crisis is over, when the terrorism has stopped. But mm-hmm. for, right now they're standing with their government, meaning they're standing with their president. Mm-hmm. Well, so it's, it's, it's going to be a very interesting year. Uh, and I, I, I would say that you know this... This conflict, this crisis is uh, is going to continue uh, for a few more years. Uh, still, um, there, there are signals. Turkey has amassed uh, quite a bit of military assets uh, in what looks like potentially they might make a play uh, to invade uh, one part of of Syria, um, similar to what they did in Ira- northern Iraq before Christmas. But um, have you seen any indications of that? Turkish, some Turkish aggression. Uh, some some signs of this? I've seen reports mentioning what you've said, and certainly Turkey has uh, repeatedly in the past um, entered into Syria and attacked. You know, they participated in the attack on Kassab. Um, but uh, as far as a large-scale invasion, I, I personally have no idea. Um, Dr. Shaban, when I met with her in December, she made an interesting point, um, and that was that Turkey was in Iraq, but withdrew when the U.S. told them to. So, you know, as we know, Turkey wouldn't do any of this if it didn't have the support of of the West. Um, So I don't know. You know, Saudi has been threatening. (laughs) Can you imagine? Saudi has been threatening to send ground forces to Syria. Oh, fat chance. Honestly. Yeah, fat Saudi chance. <laughs> fat, fat Saudi chance. I don't see that happening unless no. they hired them from another country and then put on Saudi uniforms and then sent them in. Yeah, maybe. I'll but, tell uh, you, Syrians mock that. I mean, Qatar at some point last year uh, threatened to send troops. And I remember Syrians were, you know, posting videos on YouTube just mocking them because it's so laughable to think that Saudi or Qatar would would even be able to, you know, that they could. <laughs> yeah, I don't even think even even on a good day, I don't think uh, Saudi military commanders or Qatari military would want to send any of their top soldiers into that sort of a situation, because um, it is a high risk situation as well. So it's just not going to happen. I think it's a lot of talk, personally. Yeah, I do too. I mean, just look at how Yemeni resistance is dealing with the Saudi um, aggression, the Saudi massacre of Yemen. The Yemeni resistance are. You know, Saudis are nothing to the Yemeni resistance. They only have the advantage of air power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's it, every again. Everyone wrote uh, the West, um, European media. They they belittled the Yemeni people. I, I saw this from January last year, and uh, the way they portray them is basically peasants uh, running around in the dirt. Uh, simple people, not very sophisticated, um, and then what they do is they overlay this uh, sectarian dialectic, which is uh, Shiite Sunni, and the, for the West, it pretty much that's the end all be all in terms of defining, you know, whatever the 
the the dynamic is it's just always you know Sunni or Shia. They yeah. did this with Yemen, and but if you look at Yemen, if you look at the the, the political history of Yemen, you look at the ge- geographical, the cultural history. This is an incredibly this probably one to me. Yemen's the most advanced political society in the Middle East, uh, bar maybe uh, Syria and Lebanon and some other places, but um, very, very advanced in terms of its sophistication, in terms of its uh, potentially, you know, there's that, again, the secular nation state. We see this in Yemen too. And again, we see a target painted on it, like we have with Syria, like we have with other countries, maybe Libya too, you might consider as a secular socialist uh, nation state. Target painted on it destroyed again same pattern so iraq syria libya yemen who's next all the countries that wesley clark listed off in when was it 2006 yeah yeah his uh his half half uh half sober speech at the commonwealth club in san francisco Mm. not my favorite person wesley clark (laughs) (laughs) but um but yeah so what 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 are your plans now? We're going to wrap up this segment, Eva. But um, just tell us what you're up to right now. We've got a link to your blog. Is that your main blog? Uh, uh, in Gaza, is that- it it is my main blog. And you know, I've toyed with changing the name, but in some senses, I I prefer to leave it because um, it brings together two important issues: Palestine and Syria, which have you know been divided by many people. So yeah, that's my main blog. Um, I'm I'm working on still on a couple of articles based on my last trip uh, to Syria. And otherwise, um, you know, I'm, I'm active on a few other fronts, but um, I'm hoping to go back to Syria in the near future. Yeah, yeah, and as well, um, we're 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 hoping to 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 plan a trip to the Middle East. I'd like to broadcast this, do a broadcast from this show, maybe in the spring uh, from perhaps Syria. Um, so we're definitely going to be asking our listeners to uh, help us to. In that effort, so there's a there's a link on the show page, uh, support twenty one wire. Uh, there's also a link to Eva Bartlett's blog in Gaza. And Eva, uh, what else in terms of your work? Have you are you working on any films, uh, documentaries? You do photography as well, right? Oh, just amateur photography. But no, I'm actually um, when I return to Syria, I'm going to work on a book. Actually, um, I haven't written a book before, but it's been pointed out to me that I should. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to go about, and mainly the idea is it's um, it's about Syrians. It's about transmitting Syrian voices, as our media won't do. So it would be from areas I've visited, areas I'd still like to visit, and it would be what are Syrians saying, not what do I say, not what does the West say. What are Syrians saying? What have they um, um, endured? What do they want? You know. So that's that's what I hope to work on in in the near future. Mm-hmm. We'll keep an eye on that, and well, I want to get you back on the show to talk about this because obviously this is a this is a, de- a f- always developing issue, but also to talk about uh, to Palestine uh, as well. And I'm sure that there's a potential this will flare up uh, in a big way in the spring and the summer, as it as it tends to do on a regular basis. But I'm thinking that this year will be like previous years. So uh, unfortunately, I'd, I I wouldn't want to get you on to talk about it in in terms of the negative things that are happening, but if they do happen, we I uh, hopefully we can talk to you about that and get some enlightenment on that issue too. Absolutely, absolutely. 
So Eva Bartlett is her name, and her work is, there's a link to it at 21st Century Wire to her blog in Gaza. Her work's all over the place uh, on, on a lot of top websites, including Global Research, RT Op-Edge, Dissident Voices, and many others, Rabble, and so forth. So do check her out. I think she's doing fantastic work. Thank you so much, Eva, for joining us this week. Thank you very much for having me, Patrick.